and welcome to Backstage Gaming, dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. And it's me, Dylan. And this week, we're not dead. Good. Last week, yeah. we were dead. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed that. Um, um, I we... still haven't listened back to that episode, but like, I, I believe you when you texted me like, oh dude, you sound like fucking obliterated. Yeah, and to your credit, when we were actually like in, in the meat of things, you put on a very admirable brave face, but there are a couple points particularly in like the playbill where you just like, it sounds like you're dying between every word. <laughs> <laughs> like you did not have the energy to give a shit about promos, oh, which dude. you know what? I respect it. <laughs> dude, it was rough. I somehow got through um, I, the performance of the play later that night, but like you have you ever had a moment, either during rehearsal or God forbid during a show, where you know what the line is and you're trying to say the line, but your mouth will just not let you get it out? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like yeah, I yeah, had yeah, that, yeah, and yeah, I actually yeah. had to stop talking and then be like, "All right," and like improvise like, uh, "I'm sorry, let me try that again." <laughs> <laughs> at least you got there. Yeah. And yeah. at least you made it through the weekend. But yeah, so this week we are both a little bit more in our brains, and so we're going to take on a slightly more thoughtful topic than Chris Reed Review Online. Um, <laughs> but this week, we're going to talk about something kind of broad. We're going to This is going to be kind of an overview of a very deep topic. I'm sure we will come back to this topic in the future uh, to do, like, more granular looks and looks at more specific in instances of what we're talking about with specific games. But for today... We're going to do a big, broad overview of what an aesthetic brings to a game. Boy, howdy, let's try to define aesthetic, which is on its own an incredibly broad term used to describe a lot of different things in media. Aesthetic basically boils down to, like, the look. Yeah, the look, the, look, feel. the feel, the sound, the, the, the emotional, like, vibe. Uh, a few episodes ago, uh, we were talking with uh, guest Will about uh, the kind of level design in the... We were talking about the aesthetic of, like, you know, Silent Hill and stuff like that. That was less aesthetic and more like uh, a concept of, like, set design and environment design. But, yeah, no, uh, aesthetic is kind of that, but, like, in more general terms. Yeah, I... I just looked up a dictionary definition because I figured, like, that would at least be helpful to put out... Here's what it actually means, and now here's what we're going to do with it. Okay. Um, aesthetic is the set of principles or ideas underlying and guiding a particular artistic work. So all of the different things that you want your art to feel like and all of the rules that you are following to get it to feel that way. And then it is also used to then, like, kind of looking the other way, being like, oh... This, you know, this horror movie is playing in the gothic aesthetic because it's got all of the, like, you know, because it's using all of those tools made by hor by gothic horror writers and filmmakers, etc., etc., etc. And this is, like I said, a very big topic that we are <laughs> endeavoring to do. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to be l looking really at, like, how the aesthetic of a game can set the tone for what the experience of playing that game is going to be. How a game presents itself to you, 
and how that feeds into then what you kind of get out of playing it. Am I describing this well at all, Dylan? I I think so. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> you said you had a secret secret tool that you wanted to pull out to talk about with this. Uh, at the not beginning a secret of the secret tool. It was just something I wanted to talk to you about, and since it fit with the episode theme, I thought it might be a nice discussion point. But yeah, anyway, let's go. So recently, I guess not so recently. So back in uh, middle school, <laughs> my brother and I <laughs> last week. No, no. I'll, <laughs> I have to give you a little bit of backstory first. Back in middle school, my brother and I, we were super into the Tales series. Uh, we, we talked about the Tales series a while ago with our friend Christine, who runs uh, the Unexplored Places. You know, we, we talked with them about that series for a bit. But it's it's kind of funny, because in middle school, we uh, Jordan and I, we would watch gameplay and uh, cutscenes in some of the animation, uh, animated cutscenes from some of the Japanese-exclusive Tales games. It was only a couple years ago that we finally, like, went through with uh, modding our PS2 to play Japanese games and actually imported those games, but I, I never, I still have never played them. Uh, but I'm actually going through Tales of Destiny 2 with Jordan right now, and that's been really fun. And even though I, I don't really know the, uh, you know, I can't understand the story, I know next to no Japanese. <laughs> um... You know, that being said, it, it's still kind of, it's 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 been worth it for the, the, the sprite work and the environment uh, alone. And so, like, that's kind of been carrying the story for me, just kind of looking at, like, the next attack animation or the next, um, the next city we visit. Looking forward to the next animated cutscene, which is, like, you know, all I ever cared about with, the, with that game as a kid. So, it's been, right. it's been cool. It's been cool. That's, like, a little off-topic, but, like, I, I thought it was cool, and it, I thought it was worth mentioning that, like, even though I don't understand the story, there is so, still something grabbing me uh, about the game with, like, the other elements. And then, you know, of course, Jordan will fill me in on, like, all right, here's where we are in the story, and I'm like, yeah, okay, cool, thanks, yeah. bro. But that's a great example, because, like, there are there are a lot of things that I really enjoy that, like, I recognize elements of them are bad, mm -hmm. but they are aesthetically pleasing to me enough that I don't care yeah for example one of my favorite movies and i will fight people about this is pacific oh boy, here rim we go. okay yeah yeah that's and pacific that's rim in a lot of ways has some problems with it the what? script is the script is fine like the script is not actively bad but like most of the characters are super two-dimensional most of the dialogue is real hokey However, my opinion of it is that all of that, even when it is not great, still fits very well in the aesthetic of what the movie is going for, which is trying to ape, like, anime about giant robots and old Godzilla flicks, and, like, it's... Two-dimensional characters are part of that. Hokey dialogue is part of that. And so, while it doesn't necessarily forgive the script, it at least elevates the script beyond the problems that are there, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, watching Pacific Rim, and I, I've told you, I think Pacific Rim is what got me to show you Overdrift. I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> Where, like, it's just kind of that, like, so over the top, like, it is so intent on following through with the hamminess that, yep. you know, it, it feels intentional, even if it doesn't feel highbrow. Yeah, I guess is is the better term. Yeah, and that's 
a a a piece of art with a solid aesthetic identity has that ability. It has that ability to like even if there's elements about it that are not highbrow like you just said or are not as good on their own as they could be they are so caught up and so enmeshed in all of the things about that piece of art that is good and is distinct and are all working together to make it what it is that you kind of forgive those minor sins and you forgive those nitpicks. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, like, Pacific Rim is a great example of this because Pacific Rim, from the, like, the word go, you know exactly what you're going in for. The movie starts, you're seeing giant, like, the, the paths of destruction left by these giant monsters and then you see a giant robot striding into the ocean and you hear like a sick electric guitar lick come in and it's like okay (laughs) i know exactly what i'm getting into right right and there's our springboard into games boom we got there smooth like butter um (laughs) well now we didn't yeah you know i i have to call myself on it (laughs) because then explaining the joke improves the joke so a good game does not necessarily have to have, like, its own absolutely distinct aesthetic. There mm-hmm. are a lot of games that are very, like, either pastiches of a bunch of different, like, aesthetic ideas, or are just, like, it's a first-person shooter. Like another first-person shooter that came out last year. And that does not necessarily make it a bad game, but it does make it less immediately memorable. Yeah. A lot of the games that, like, have staying power are games that have a very distinct aesthetic and that you you can look at it and hear, like, a couple notes of the soundtrack and see a screenshot and think, okay, I get it. Like, maybe I I don't know the story, maybe I don't know the twist, but I get what this game is trying to be. I I think a good recent example of a game that's... a, A game series that, like, had an established aesthetic and then deviated from it with mixed results... Uh, is Resident Evil 7. Um, oh, which, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cause, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> um, so Resident Evil 1 through 6, despite how varied the game, the game itself, the games themselves have been, they've always kind of leaned into a schlocky B-movie type of yeah, they're, uh, they're, appeal. They're the Saturday morning cartoons of the horror game genre. Yeah, you and know I don't what? say that. I don't no, say no, that derisively. I, I, I definitely get what you mean. It's 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 got like a very comic book feel to me. Is yeah. what I'll say. Um, yeah. And then later that comic book feel evolved into comic book movie feel to varying successes. So like they they used to be like they used to be like B horror movies and then they turned into B action movies. Is basically what I'm getting. at. Yeah, that's that's a pretty concise description of a big change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Resident Evil 7 comes out, and the first half of that game is really aesthetically striking because, you know, they do go back into the B-horror movie angle, but this time instead of Haunted Mansion with zombies in it, it's it's more of a uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre type of deal where you're in this room with these, uh, you're, you're in this house with these people, but they're not quite right and they're they're cannibals maybe and they're just not very pleasant to be yeah. around. Resident Evil um, 7 is so effective. <laughs> yeah. Uh I have not played it, but I've mm-hmm. watched some of it and it ties into a very quintessentially like it's it's impressive because 
it's still being made by a Japanese company, but it, they're tapping into a very quintessentially American Americana. kind of horror. Yeah. Like, it is it is the horror of, like, what's it's... going on behind the facade of normalcy. Yeah. And what's going on with, you know, these neighbors in the house that you never really see. What's up with them? What's their story? What's the worst that their story could be? Yeah. Uh, I've heard it described as, like, Appalachian horror. That's, which I think is a very, a very good term for yeah. for what they do. And I, I think a lot of people will agree that, like, Resident Evil 7, unfortunately, kind of drops the ball in its second half. Because every Resident Evil game has a transition from this very, like, traditional uh, setting. So the first game had the mansion, the second game had the, the police station, so on and so forth. The fourth game had the village and the church that then turned into this weird military island fortress place. Usually there's a transition to you're in an Umbrella Inc. Uh, lab, which is they're yeah. the people who make the virus that turn people into zombies. Um, in Resident Evil 7, you are on, you uh, go from a uh, like a mansion in the bayou, or like it has that aesthetic to it, to um, very much it, it, it you you are on an umbrella owned uh, tanker, I think, uh, ship, and it it really loses a lot of that kind of aesthetic appeal. It, yeah. it loses that kind of griminess for a different kind of grimy griminess, but it's more industrial. It lacks the kind of organic gross factor of the previous location. Yeah. Um and you know, it's it's not a house, so a lot of the a lot of it is uniform in design and utilitarian and it just doesn't have that same feeling of memorability to it. Gotcha. And yeah, since um, since we're here on Resident Evil, we should say that I was like, about to say Alright, I was gonna flip the script and say, then they remade Resident Evil Two, and boy golly, that game is aesthetically strong throughout. Yeah. And so let's let's break down this term a little bit. We've we've discussed what aesthetic is about like, you know, it's all of these sort of underlying ideas that are going into the holistic body of a piece of art. Yeah. If you break an aesthetic down, what we're talking about is like what is the art style? What is the lighting like? How is it framed? What's the music? What's the approach to acting and voice acting and voice direction uh how with games how does it feel to control how do the characters in the game react to your actions it's it is how you answer all of these like individual questions about the minutia of what you're putting into the game and with that in mind what what is if you had to break down break apart like what are the strongest aesthetic elements in the RE2 remake what are the artistic choices they make that make it as effective as they do so again i'm going to divide it into three parts every yeah. resident evil game kind of has three locations uh the first devil may cry does too as well uh, ironically enough so you start at the police station the mm -hmm. or I guess technically you start in, like, the city outside of the police station, but the game really formally begins in the police station. And uh, the police station's actually a reformatted, like, it was a museum that closed, and I guess they, they decided to, op to open a new police station there. But they left all the statues with the twisty arms that need swords. Yeah, you, you need the puzzles, Chris. <laughs> you can't have a Resident Evil game without puzzles. So, yeah, no, you're, you're, expo you're exploring this museum, and it has all of the 
dustiness and creepy factor that an abandoned museum at night would have. Um, and also there are zombies. Go figure. Um, and, you know, there are guns there because now it's a police station, so you won't run out of ammo. It's a nice little compromise. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you, you, you unlock a secret passageway into the sewers because there's a whole plot thing about the, the chief of police taking uh, bribes from Umbrella. So there's a secret passageway through the sewers. Don't worry about it too much. Um, and, you know, sewers are, by nature, gross. True. <laughs> Don't really know if there's any other way to, to say that. So you go from, like, this kind of dusty, dingy, like, you know, uh, it's overrun by zombies, so there's a lot of blood and gore everywhere, uh, to the sewers... And so, like, it, it really kind of takes this grotesque revulsion and ups it up a bit. And then you finally get to the Umbrella Lab, which they completely redesigned it from the original Resident Evil 2. In, in the remake, it feels very sanitized. It feels almost pristine. But it's been overrun by zombies as well, so that image quickly gets shattered as you see these clean hallways slicked with blood. And, you know, there, there's zombies everywhere, and there's this mutated plant that has overrun the, uh, like, sections of the lab. It's it's really cool. It feels yeah, that, a lot fresher in its horror, like, so, like something just went wrong. Yeah, and that's also, from what I've seen of that, like, Act 3 laboratory setting, uh, they also play around with one of the other fun things you can do as you're, as you're coming up with the aesthetic of your piece of media is you can play with, like, existing visuals and existing things and that whole like very sanitized hallways and corridors of this uh this science lab feels very evocative in not only like the you know the white tile floor and how pristine it is but also like the lighting and the way that it's presented it honestly reminds me of like a dentist's office or a hospital uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump back in to say it is startlingly white uh, yeah. when you when you first enter that lab. You just don't know what you're expecting, and then you're just hit with the cleanness of it all. Yeah, and so it carries with it all of that, like, if you, like a lot of people, have anxiety about going to the doctors or going to the dentist, that's capital, that's, you know, kind of grafted onto this already unnerving setting. And that's what being thoughtful about how you present your world and how you develop your aesthetic can that's that's the kind of the kind of good it can get you uh the umbrella lab also feels impossibly big like there's oh, yeah? one there's one hallway that's literally just the the death star shaft that uh the empire gets thrown down oh my in God. return of the jedi <laughs> <clears throat> and it just it gives you this idea of like wow this place has been here and this place is like taking over the like the catacombs of the city. <laughs> this is our city. And like that that hallway is in the original Resident Evil 2, but like you know, 3D modeling gives it such a different it like different impression of scale. I want to do a like the 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 hardest hairpin turn we've ever done. Oh, okay. We're going to go from Resident Evil to our main man, Mario. <laughs> For some reason, I thought you were going to say Kirby, and that would have been even funnier. <laughs> Kirby also works, but, like, I want to... We don't show enough love to the red plumber boy. We don't. We also don't show enough love to Kirby, but I it's get what true. you're saying. But Mario, you know, he's one of the most 
veteran game characters and game series that exist that's still being made today. And he is... A, the Mario, Mario's games are a great example in contrast to sort of Resident Evil's, like, general upping of the goofy factor <laughs> throughout their their series. Mario has been remarkably consistent aesthetically. Except for that one level in Odyssey where it turns into Dark Souls for a boss fight. <laughs> True. <clears throat> but even then, like, if you look at every Mario game, going all the way back to, like, Super Mario Bros. for the NES, there's a continuity there even as the games became more advanced there is a consistency in the tone of the music everything being very upbeat and and jaunty and even when you get like you know the traditional dungeon theme of the like da 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 like that song even though it's in a minor key and it's a little more menacing it still has like a groove to it yeah the colors are bright and vibrant the sound effects are all really exaggerated and cartoony and you look at that in the suit in the original mario and then fast forward to like super mario odyssey it is aesthetically more advanced the music is you know we're not dealing with midi tracks anymore we're dealing Mm -hmm. with we're not dealing with chiptunes we're dealing with orchestration but the idea behind the music is largely the same yeah there's differences like they the Super Mario Odyssey soundtrack clearly was trying to capture a bit more of a, like, kind of globe-trotting adventure movie sort of feel. Yeah. But it's still very identifiably Mario. It's still got that, like, pep and, for lack of a better term, kind of joy to yeah. every song. Again, even the ones where you're in, like, the deep, dark underground fighting a zombie. <laughs> and you've got, like, again... Even though the graphics are, you know, Mario has more than 24 pixels to call his own. <laughs> the proportions are still somewhat cartoonish and the sound effects are still over the top. And you've, they, they have shown a remarkable dedication to f- continually refining and maintaining that core aesthetic of like what makes a Mario game feel like a Mario game. Mm-hmm. So even if the first level involves a photorealistic Tyrannosaurus Rex, it's still Mario, and you can still slap your mustache on that boy and go to town. And, like... Excuse me? Do you you not remember how you can take... (laughs) No, I I do remember it was the phrasing that I was making fun of. Yeah, that's fair. But, like, that's the kind of, of benefit that games that find and maintain their core aesthetic have they they always know that they can trust their audience to recognize that element of their game even if they're adding different things on top of it and even if they're you know now mario has a water backpack and now mario has a talking hat and now mario has you know a tanuki tail and whatever it happens to be Mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of games that have done that the super like nintendo in general is very good at maintaining aesthetic throughout their franchises yeah Uh, or experimenting with aesthetic and having it still work another game that we had on sort of our our short list for this topic was doom and doom is another game that like if you put a still of the original doom next to a still from you know doom 2016 item one don't do that yeah yeah (laughs) that's that's fair that's a good way to give yourself like whiplash for how far we've come 
But, like, in spite of how janky the original Doom looks, you can tell that they're going for the same thing. Janky, I'm sorry. That... I actually think that aesthetic holds up super here's well. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Janky, technically. Okay, Aesthetically, yeah, yeah, yes. No, I, I love the original Doom, and I love, like, all of the, the trickery that went into this pseudo-3D game back before 3D was really a thing that was possible. Like... Yeah, yeah. The original Doom is a, is an incredible game. But, like, you look at the, the, the... I guess, just as a point of comparison... The creature designs, the, like, pixel art sprites of the enemies in Doom 1. Mm-hmm. Like, they look like what you would get if you were a fan artist doing pixel art of the enemies in Doom 2016. You know what? That's... that's fair. The The technical ability has increased through the roof. The design aesthetic is pretty consistent. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Um, again, it's text- actually funny that you mentioned Doom because this is while this isn't quite the same thing, I've I've been watching someone kind of break down what about Duke Nukem Forever is so not great, <laughs> bad. Yes, so terrible. In fact, so hurt me. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, it's a video series on why playing Duke Nukem Forever hurts. Um, and so he uh he was he was comparing it, it it's Matt McMuscles by the way uh just so you know Chris I love um, it yeah uh but he's been uh he's playing the game and he he was kind of pointing out like look at all this gray remember remember how known for gray Duke Nukem was <laughs> yeah all that, those vibrant environments yeah um, you know on top of other problems that Duke Nukem has had since the nineties but have been exacerbated by time yeah no kidding yeah but yeah that's uh, a, that's a yeah sorry go ahead no no that's just that's a very good point to bring up because just as like finding your your core aesthetic and sticking to it is a very useful thing failing to maintain that leads to things like duke nukem forever which like in addition to just not being fun to play did not feel at all like the old duke nukem games mm-hmm. except in like the fact that they were making childish jokes. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of it. Yeah. With that said, what if we hop into the playbill? Yeah. And then when we come back, we've got a a different Nintendo property to talk about because there's another one that does some very interesting things with aesthetic choices that we want to talk on. Yeah. So let's I, uh... I have too many ideas for shit to talk about, but <laughs> we'll we'll work it out. We'll we'll figure it out. That's a good problem to have. <laughs> So then, now that we're in the playbill, we need to talk about other things that are going on, other things in our lives, other projects we're working on. Dylan, we, I am no longer a part of your other family, but tell me about your other podcast family. Oh, now that okay. You've boot, now that you've kicked me to the curb. Now you're that you're done welcome, with me. You're always welcome to record more I know. episodes with us, Chris. I know. <laughs> uh, yes, but uh, I, I record with a mutual friend of ours, Coop. Uh, we talk about the anime Superdimensional Fortress Macross in the hit podcast. It's not a hit podcast, but it is a podcast. <laughs> Dude, you remember Macross. I mean, like, you know, once, pe- once people start... Hit in square brackets. <laughs> <laughs> We've been watching uh, the original Superdimensional Fortress Macross 
uh, pretty soon uh, we will start uh, watching Macross 2, which is, I believe, a six-episode OVA. Uh, not entirely sure everything. Uh, my knowledge of the series past the uh, first movie is kind of null, so it's going to be a brand new journey for me. It's going to be fun to like kind of have these raw um, reactions and takes to things I've never seen before, so that's going to be fun. But uh, yeah, no, um, the original Macross is a classic uh, 80s mecha anime. If you want to if, if you wanna check it out on your own, I highly recommend doing so. But you can also hear me talk about it. Uh, and if you'd like to do that, you can check us out on anchor.fm slash remember. Again, that is D-U-D-E-Y-O-U remember. Uh, we are also on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. Aw, yes. You should also show some love to our friends at The Unexplored Places. They're an actual play podcast. Previously, their season one was using Monster of the Week, which was a phenomenal game used to tell stories about a bunch of friends in rural Ohio solving mysteries about spooky monsters. Coming in October, we're going to have season two, which features me as one of the main playable characters, Dylan as uh, a recurring side character, it's a sci-fi adventure that we're doing sort of in the vein of, like, Star Wars-style space operas, and it is going to be so very good. I'm so excited about it, and you should check them out. They're on Twitter, at UnexploredCast, or you can find them at unexploredcast.libsyn.com. They've got, in addition to Season 1 and the upcoming Season 2, there's some interstitial episodes. Uh, we played a brief series using a game system called Bigfoot Stole My Car with my best friend's birthday present inside. Currently, we're putting out, uh, this this week as you're hearing this, I think tomorrow as you're hearing this, episode three of our fiasco game titled Catfish's The Rock Opera is going to be live. And I can't tell you how hard I laughed listening back to episode two, having forgotten all of the dumb jokes we made. So, you know, it has the Chris Wilson seal of approval. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and you should just there. It's it's fun stories made by fun people. I love everyone that we work with on that, and you should go show them some love. Other people you should show some love include me, if you want to. <laughs> I'm on Twitter at CJ Wilson VA if you want to follow to keep track of what I'm doing and also things that make me laugh that I retweet. And you should also follow Dylan because he's fun. What's your what's your dad? What's what's your dad, Dylan? I'm on Twitter right now, and my <laughs> at is at the Dilla. That is T H A underscore D I L A. Yeah. I don't know what. I don't know what Chris was. What my my <laughs> I, dad? What? I, I lost my ability to to communicate like a human being do. Okay. Um, but here we are. Other than that, we're we're now a part of a group called the HP Video Game Podcast Network. It's a group of video game related podcasts that do a bunch of cool things looking at video games from different angles you can follow them on twitter at hpvg pod network uh they retweet all of the different shows on the network but there's a ton of great stuff there's shows like game dev advice which is a show actually made by people who know what the fuck they're talking about re video game creation uh there's the weekly games chat which is more of a video game news sort of show there's super gamer boys which is sort of video game news meets guys hanging out and talking about what they've been playing it's just a bunch of shows looking at video games as a medium from a bunch of different angles and you should go show all of those guys some love and you should also head over to patreon.com slash bsg pod that is where we have our patreon which you support to help us pay for our website 
and keep doing this show without losing money on it, which is incredible, and we are incredibly grateful to all of you who have done that. If you want to help us out, if you like what we do, and you want to help us pay for better recording setups, have to have the more have more time to do different kinds of shows and do different things with what we're doing, that is the place to do that. And we appreciate every bit of support we have gotten that way, and we hope that as time goes on, we will get more support so that we are able to give more back and provide more in return. That's all I've got for the playbill. Dylan, anything else you wanna you wanna plug? Uh no, I think I'm good. Alright. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Let's get back to it. I, we're, we are predictable boys. And by that I mean, we're going to talk about a franchise that we have talked about in many episodes, but it fits, goddammit, if it didn't fit so well for so many of our topics, we wouldn't do that. It's time to talk Zelda. Oh, I thought we were avoiding the Z word. Wait, what? I, I brought it up specifically before know, we started I know, recording. I'm, 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 did I don't I, I actually? Oh no, you did. You're right. You're right. <laughs> you're a butt. <laughs> Sorry, that was weird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Zelda is a really interesting game to look at from an aesthetic point of view because. Nintendo has established a very solid aesthetic for what a Zelda game is. You know that it is an adventure game. They, From the word go, all of the music choices and the way that the game has been presented has always lent itself to an air of exploration. However, Zelda also features way more variation in aesthetic and tone than, like, almost any other long-running Nintendo franchise that I can think of. Yeah. Like, Metroid has changed in terms of, like, gameplay aesthetic more dramatically. But in terms of, like, what it feels like to inhabit a Metroid game, Metroid Prime is pretty close in tone and in feeling to Super Metroid. Yeah. Whereas, if you look at Zelda, you've got everything from Wind Waker to Twilight Princess to Majora's Mask. There's a huge degree of variation in what they are willing to change about how the game feels and how the game presents itself and presents the context for that sense of adventure, if that makes sense. I have a message I need to send you. I don't know what these words... Oh, Metroid Prime. (laughs) Dylan just messaged me, but Chris, Federation Force, which is a game I'd forgotten existed. As did many. Dylan, what's Federation Force? the most jaded of Metroid fans. Uh, Metroid Prime Federation Force was a four-player co-op shooter for the 3DS that... I can't tell you if it was a good or a bad game, because honestly, a lot of people didn't really give it the chance it maybe uh, deserved. 
it, it just looked really slow to me. But basically, it was a four-player co-op shooter that took place in the Metroid universe, where you play as Galactic Federation soldiers, and the aesthetic was very uh, deformed and cutesy. And it, like, honestly, it would have been fine, but, like, there hasn't, there at the time, there hadn't been a Metroid game in... God, when did Federation Force come out? Because I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with... Metroid Other M came out in 2011, I think. So, 2015 was when it was announced. So, okay. that's, that's, four years, you know, maybe not the worst it's ever been, but, like, definitely was kind of a, uh... Yeah, and looking at these reviews, it doesn't seem like the gameplay was anything to write home about either. So, yeah, no, that, that just left a bad <laughs> taste in everyone's mouth. Yeah. But anyway, but anyway back that, to Zelda. Yeah, back to Zelda. <laughs> I was just being a facetious bitch. Yeah, I got you. That's why I keep you. Um, yeah. But, like, Zelda, I guess I, I'm, I don't have a set point beyond that I think that this is an interesting case study, and I kind of want to chat with you and see if we can figure out why this works so well. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I guess it varies from, like, 2D Zelda to 3D Zelda, because even though I would argue they have similar aesthetics... Oh no, it's a little weird. But I think the things that are important to Zelda that that make it Zelda are kept throughout each game. You have you have a diverse range of environments that usually fit into, you know, your typical tropes. You have the uh fire-themed uh Death Mountain, you have the uh you have the more aquatic Zora's domain, like you you have you have like the staple areas. Yeah. And I, I think on top of that, you know, there there's just this constant, even if, like, it's not the same from game to game, there there's this constant idea of, like, discovery in that, like, you are about to see a brand new environment, like, every, maybe every hour or so of gameplay. I think that might have, like, I think that might be part of it, at least. Yeah. I think what what's fascinating is that they have stumbled upon, I think for Zelda, it's worth examining, like, You've got two different sort of aesthetic identities. Mm-hmm. You've got the, and I'm 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 playing word soup a little bit right now. That's you know that's quite all right. But you've got like the the mechanical aesthetic. This mm-hmm. the sort of the 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 core gameplay engagement of the Zelda franchise, which for the vast majority of them is built around a cycle of exploring, fighting puzzle solving and like finding new toys and new tools and new applications for tools within each of those three sort of pillars of the game and that is what is for the most part super consistent across Zelda games Mm -hmm. and so what they seem to have done is they've, they've kind of gone like well that's what we need to keep the same that's what we need in order for people to go along with us of it being a Zelda game. And then on the other side of the fence, you've got the artistic aesthetic. You've got the visuals, the music, the the presentation of the game. And as opposed to something like Mario, where they seem to have kept both of those aesthetics very much on the same tracks, with Zelda, they were like, nah, it's good enough if we keep the 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 mechanical aesthetic consistent. And let's do cell shading. And let's put it on an ocean. Okay, we did that. Now let's make it, like, hyper-realistic. And make it much more of, like, kind of horror-themed. And add, like, a 
a different twist to the two worlds thing that we have going on. And now in this one, let's go back to like a slightly different cell shading and make it much more like aggressively open world. And mm-hmm. so they're they're able to like layer these different coats of paint on top of the core engagement. Except for Scott, except for uh, for Breath of the Wild, which is a terrible Zelda game, of course. Um, yeah, we're Zelda game. Like we, game of the like year. Should, yeah, I feel like we should probably stop on that. Yeah, no, that's a dumb bit. That's just for us. <laughs> but I mean, Breath of the Wild is an interesting case study mm-hmm. because Breath of the Wild is like the first Zelda game in a very long time that kind of us like set aside the. Zelda gameplay formula as was established in Link to the Past. Yeah. The, uh, you know, A Link Between Worlds doesn't do it quite to the same extent, but it does give you significantly more freedom with the order in which you tackle dungeons. But I think that it's worth, like, from what I have seen, Breath of the Wild and to a lesser extent Link Between Worlds were both, they both fell into that trap of people being like, it's starting not to feel like a Zelda game. I think for some I've, people. Yeah, I think I've talked to more people who enjoy A Link Between Worlds than like I think A Link Between Worlds is more a universally accepted yeah uh, look at breaking the Zelda formula, as it were, uh, than Breath of the Wild was. And as much as I love Breath of the Wild, I think I take issue more with people saying it's not a good Zelda game than people take issue with it this game has a lot of problems and I don't think it deserves quite as much praise as it's getting. I feel like that's a little bit more reasonable than yeah, the definitely. latter argument. I, I, I will poke fun at people who say it's not a good Zelda game though. Yeah. Cause that means nothing. But I think that like <laughs> Zelda is so fascinating to talk about on this because like, you've got all of these different visual styles. You've got all of these different like ideas about like what kind of music to play, like compare. I mean, and these are two pieces of music from wildly different emotional moments in the game. But imagine the uh, that piano piece that plays during Twilight Princess when Midna is sick and you're running her to Zelda. Mm-hmm. Imagine that playing anywhere in Wind Waker. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't have, like, a ton more on this, but I thought that if we were looking at how aesthetic and consistency of aesthetic is such a useful tool, Zelda is an interesting case study because... There's things they do and there's things they don't. And they're, it's interesting to look at, like, what changes. And it had it's in my mind. It was on my mind today because uh, as of recording this, we're recording this the day after the Link's Awakening remake was mm-hmm. released on the Nintendo Switch. And Link's Awakening was already, like, kind of one of the weirder Zelda games. It mm-hmm. came out before, like, the Link to the Past formula was you know, the formula for how Zelda games were put together. Yeah, it came out in between A Link to the Past and Ocarina of Time, so it tried something different, and then Ocarina of Time solidified the formula. And so not only is Link's Awakening kind of a black sheep gameplay-wise in what they were trying to do... I wouldn't go that far. I mean, black sheep (laughs) is is, is a much more, like, a much stronger word than I think was needed there, you're right. But Mm -hmm. it's... It's an odd duck. It doesn't okay. completely feel like any other Zelda game before or after. It's very much its own kind of thing. But it's still... It honestly, in a way, having, you know, been thinking about this game recently, being excited for this remake, I haven't gotten to play the remake yet, but it 
reminds me a lot of sort of it it feels like the midway point between Link to the Past and Breath of the Wild. In some ways I agree with you. Like it like has, it, it's it's definitely still linear like most Zelda games yeah, where it, you it have Yeah, it has the structure and linearity and kind of formula again not the exact same formula that came to be the norm but like a, you know, a structure that is reminiscent of Link to the Past and a density of things to do that is reminiscent of Link to the Past. But it's got a, the similar sense of, like, it discovery and, like, figuring out how all of the pieces of this world fit together and how you can engage with all of the pieces of this world that, for me, that reminds me a lot of the experience of playing Breath of the Wild for the first time. Yeah. And learning how to make your way in this world. And in a way, it also reminds me of uh, Majora's Mask. Yeah. And in, like, that Where density it's just all of, kind like, of, there's so much to do. Yeah. Like, th- there's a huge density of stuff that you might not be able to do all of it from the outset. But the fact that it's very upfront about what there is to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I get what you mean now. And so it's in a unique place where, like, it is more than almost any other Zelda game, a unique mechanical aesthetic, a mm-hmm. unique engagement aesthetic. And then they're coming to it and giving it a visual aesthetic that is completely new for the franchise. Like, the the Breath of the Wild, or the, not the Breath of the Wild, the... the they're taking the A Link Between Worlds um, kind of miniature, like, we, we took the 2D sprites and, like, directly transferred them into... Almost like Rankin and Bass, yeah, uh, yeah, claymated figures, um, and they they took it a step forward with uh, introducing the more Game Boy Color like bright uh, tropical color palette. Yeah, and the I'm excited to play it. It's sitting on my Switch waiting for me. Uh, everything I have seen of it, it just it feels like a Zelda game in the best way, in that it feels mm-hmm. immediately familiar and immediately new Mm -hmm. and that that is if anything that is what zelda has used this sort of like twisting and constantly like rethinking of their aesthetic for every time a new zelda game is teased every time a new zelda game comes out every time a new trailer comes out i get excited because there's an element of it that's always familiar and there's also always something unexpected and always something that makes me think like I wonder what they're going to do with that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that comes from the aesthetic choices that they're able to put on display. And I feel like I just used up the rest of my thoughts. Cool. Well, I have I, I have a final series to talk about, and Please then we can do. wrap this up. So, I've been playing a lot of Fatal Fury again. Oh, yes. Dylan, what's Fatal Fury? Well, if are you a Smash player? Are you okay? Yeah. Buster Wolf! If you are a Smash fan, there is probably a new character added to the roster who you might have never heard of. If you're a scrub. No. Um, <laughs> Terry Bogard is the kind of... If you're he, a he's the face filthy casual. Stop. Uh, he, he's the face for the SNK uh, franchise. And he, he is the main character of the Fatal Fury series of fighting games. Uh, and in addition, he is a major character in the King of Fighters series of fighting games, which is also a crossover fighting game series. It, 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 it's cool. 
but anyway, uh, Fatal Fury was made by uh, the original director of the first Street Fighter, which Chris and I both know is not a very good game. But uh, <laughs> Fatal Fury is a good game. And uh, the, the thing that kind of made it stand out, um, it and its prequel series, Art of Fighting, is that they both take place entirely within one city. So while Street Fighter is like, you go from Thailand to Japan to the USA, uh, two locations in the USA, I want to say, uh, to Brazil, and you're just hopping from location of the world to location of the world, and you are fighting these people with these very nationalist uh, character designs. Like, Chun-Li has a, forgive me for mispronouncing this, but I think it's uh, Chi Pao? Shi Pao, something like that, uh, traditional Japanese, uh, Chinese dress, sorry. You know, Ryu has a karate gi, so on and so forth. The, th- the cool thing about Fatal Fury and Art of Fighting is that the characters are wearing clothes that you would expect them to. So there is, uh, there's a lady in Art of Fighting, her name is King, um, and she, she dresses very androgynously. She's, she's a bar bouncer, so she kind of wears, like, loosely fitting uh, a loosely fitting suit or a tuxedo to kind of disguise her figure so, you know, pe- she can intimidate people as the bouncer. There's, uh, you know, Terry Bogard himself wears, like, very casual 90s. Almost reminds me of uh, of Kurt Russell's character from Big Trouble in Little China. It's very much that. It's, like, trucker ball cap, t-shirt, vest. Yeah. And, and you know, you'll Diesel get... jeans. <laughs> You'll get characters who feel a little bit more like, oh, they're from some crazy part of the world. But the fact that it's it all takes place in this one city, uh, Southtown, kind of really gives it a, a grounded feel. You know, they're also fighting games that have cutscenes that take place in between fights, which I believe they were the first uh, people to do that. Just Just a whole lot of emphasis on story and character. And so these two games would later cross over in the King of Fighters series... And which would introduce more characters and introduce more uh, different locations. It, King of Fighters is an international fighting tournament, so they started doing the Street Fighter thing of you're in this location of the world, now you're in this one. But while Street Fighter kind of focused on like more fantastical places, like you'd be in front of any various uh, touristy locations or like just some way to kind of exotify uh, the location you are visiting, you go to the Japan stage or the Hong Kong stage in King of Fighters, you might be in a highway underpass or like at a harbor um and it's it's very mundane and it, it kind of keeps this grounded reality to it even as characters are launching fireballs at each other and doing crazy tricks in the air but like even the characters are dressed pretty mundanely like you have you know the occasional character wearing a karate gi but uh the main character of King of Fighters Kyo he wears a school uniform um and yeah there, there's it's it's just very down to earth in its presentation and yeah. all these characters have bios that state their likes and dislikes and hobbies there's there's just an emphasis on making these characters feel like people yeah as opposed to like paragons of martial arts excellence yeah yeah exactly i need to go back and revisit some of those old neo geo games they are really fun it's been a very long time um i highly recommend king of fighters 98 or uh Fatal Fury, uh, real bout Fatal Fury. Okay, so I- I'm recording this after Chris and I had our conversation, but I- it just occurred to me that I recommended you you play Fatal Fury Special in King of Fighters 98. 
Uh, King of Fighters 98 is a classic, but um, rather than Fatal Fury Special, you should check out Goro, Mark of the Wolves. It is the uh, last game in the Fatal Fury series, and also one of SNK's best fighting games. I just couldn't, in good conscience, not mention that. Alright, bye. Thanks, Chris. If you actually edit this in. Write those down when you edit this episode, Chris. Will do. And you write those down as you listen to this episode, audience. And also write down to remember to listen to us next week, because I think that's about all we've got. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. This was fun. Uh, like I said at the beginning, this was a very broad overview of like a an incredibly deep topic. At some point in the future, I'd love to do episodes looking like i think that this would be a fun thing to bring in if we ever do some of those like returns to deep dive on single game style episodes in the future honestly Uh, we should probably start like right after we finish this we should pick a topic and then be like all right in a week we'll we're gonna have this together (laughs) yeah there we go (laughs) pretend like we're good at this um so in a week get ready for us to be good at this until then thank y'all for listening to backstage gaming uh if you like what we're doing which we hope you do, please consider leaving a rating, leaving a review on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, That will really help us to grow and to get in front of more people. Uh, Consider telling your friends about us. Consider sharing this thing that brings you joy with the people in your life that bring you joy. And just Marie Kondo this shit. Spread joy. Via social media. What nice transition. Uh, yeah, no, if you want to check us out on social media, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, our handle is at BSG underscore cast, and you can also find us on YouTube. Um, also, you know, if, if you want to talk with us, engage with us in any way, we highly endorse that. Uh, and you can use the hashtag at BSG pod and we'll find you. <laughs> <That was> <laughs> The most threatening thing I've ever heard, but he's not wrong. <laughs> also, if you like uh, the key art we use for our show, that's provided to us by our friend Brennan French. You can check him out on Squarespace at brennan-french.squarespace.com. That is B-R-E-N-N-E-N-french.squarespace.com. Uh, you can also find him on Instagram.com slash brennanfrencharts. Yeah, you should also go and show some love to our friend BioQuery. He is a musician. He's the guy behind our theme song, Dot Sound Radio Volume 1 Instrumentality. He's got a bunch of different things in the works and a bunch of different EPs that are out, some of his solo work, some that he produced for other artists. Uh, all of his stuff is really great. It's super cool electronica. You can find him on Spotify by searching for BioQuery. That's B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y or by going to soundcloud.com slash bioquery. And one more time, big thank you to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network. Find them on Twitter, HPVGPodNetwork, and give some of the other shows on the network a listen and a follow if you like what they're doing. And check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash bsgpod. This show is brought to you by you, and it will be brought to you more by you if you like what we're doing and want to support us and help us make it the best show it can be. That's all I've got for this week. Dylan, any final words for the, the good the good children of the world? Is it bad that when you said you, the first thing that popped into my head was Soldier Boy? Oh my god, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>